And well, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Ephesians. Um, in our series that we're going through right now, titled Living by the Book, we've already spent time talking about the idea of marriage, really developing a theology of marriage. What is marriage? What is marriage for? And we've uh, evaluated the, the biblical design, God's design for marriage and God's purpose for marriage. But what I want to do the next two weeks is, is not just talk about what marriage is and why marriage exists and what it's for. I want to talk about what that should look like. What are we to do as husbands and as wives in this marriage relationship? And so to answer these questions, like always, we want to turn to Scripture for light and for truth and for instruction. Uh, it's interesting. I did, um, I've done, I don't know, a dozen, 15 weddings maybe, um, but I think it was the second or third wedding I ever did. I've never done another one like this, but it was sort of a friend of a friend, and it was last minute, it was an emergency, and they asked me, would you be willing to come and do this wedding? And I had never met um, the bride. I had met the groom once, like 10 years before or five years before, something like that. And so usually I do premarital counseling with people, and we talk through God's plan for marriage, and we work towards the wedding day. But this was kind of cold turkey show up, just do the ceremony. And I said, well, I'd be happy to do it, but just so you know, I'm going to preach the gospel and I'm going to read some Bible verses because that's the only way I know how to do it. And that's how I think it should be done. And the guy was like, oh, yeah, sure, that's fine. That's great, whatever you want. So it was an outdoor wedding. It was downtown. It was at Loose Park um, in the Rose Gardens there. It's about 100 degrees, and we're standing there sweating to death. And the first time I ever met the bride is when she walks down the aisle. And as I'm doing this, and these are both um, unbelievers, by the way. Um, but they had said, sure, you can talk about the Bible. You can preach the gospel. And when I read Ephesians 5.22 um, in the ceremony, uh, the bride literally snorted and like laughed in my face, like in the middle of the ceremony. Because Ephesians 5.22 says, if you want to look at it, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. <laughs> it really isn't all that surprising, is it, to get a reaction like that? Because you know what? The, the biblical model for marriage is repugnant to the world. And it's repugnant to the world because it's repugnant, it's repulsive to our flesh. That isn't what some of us want to hear. But let me ask you, if we are to trust our flesh and to trust the consensus of the world, what they say marriage should be, how they say marriage should work, how they say these roles are supposed to, to, to complement one another, do we really want their advice? Do we really want the world's advice on how men and women should conduct themselves in the marriage relationship? Because, listen, the world has flatly rejected the biblical model. And this rejection of biblical authority has resulted in a whole lot of experimentation. God, this is what you say, but we're going to try this our way. We're going to improve on that and do it the way we think it should be done. But, friends, this has led to so much confusion when it comes to marriage. And confusion leads to conflict, and conflict leads to hurt. If you are confused about marriage, you're not just wrong. You will end up experiencing grief and sorrow and the damage of what the relationship, the marriage relationship is intended to be. And the consequences of this marital confusion leaves scars, scars that can span generations. It's hard to find someone who's not been impacted by the hurt that comes from marriages that are distorted marriages that are broken. We would do well to heed God's instruction for marriage. Now, there are many texts that speak to God's will for marriage, but I want to park on Ephesians 5 for the next two weeks because here in Ephesians 5, we, we find probably the most extended focus on the marriage relationship. But before we jump into chapter 5, I want to zoom out just for a moment and get a sense of the book of Ephesians as a whole. Now, don't worry, we're not going to preach the whole book this morning, but I want to draw your attention to just how this book is put together. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a group of believers at a church in Ephesus. These believers there, and this letter, this personal letter, is really neatly divided into two sections. If you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, if you've read it, you'll see that chapters 1 through 3 give us what we call the indicatives, statements of what is true, what we are to believe. And then in chapters 4 through 6, it takes a turn, and then Paul gives us imperatives, commands, instructions, practical teaching that we are to obey. So there's Christian doctrine in, in chapters 1 through 3 and Christian duty in chapters 4 through 6. We have right theology up front, 
And then we have right living flowing from that teaching. We have what is true and then how we must live in light of those truths. And as you look at chapters 1 through 3, Paul lays out for us the magnificent truth of our salvation. What God has done for us by his grace through his son Jesus Christ. All for his glory. It's a magnificent explanation of his work of redemption, all that he is accomplishing for us and in us. And as this doctrine unfolds, we're given a a glorious vision of the supremacy of Christ. I want you to look at chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, and notice what Paul says about Jesus. In verse 20, he speaks of this great work that he worked, verse 20, in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Jesus Christ is resurrected in glory. He is seated on high. He is supreme over all. That's who Jesus is. That's what God has done for him, raising him from the dead. And then in verse 22 through 23, look at his supremacy over the church. Verse 22, it says, And he, speaking of God the Father, put all things under his feet, under the feet of Jesus, and gave him, listen to this, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is on the throne, supreme over all powers. Jesus is the head of the body, supreme in and over the church. We see more of this in chapter 2. Look in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 19, at the end of chapter 2 there. Speaking of what God has done in saving us and joining us together as, as a church, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Get this. Christ Jesus himself being the what? The cornerstone the most important part, the thing that holds it all together. He says Jesus is the cornerstone, the cornerstone of this spiritual temple, which is called the church. Peter describes us as living stones that are being built together into a dwelling place for the Lord, the Holy Spirit himself among us, we as a living temple. And Jesus, what's his part in all this? He's the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone. In whom, verse 21 In Jesus, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus is resurrected. He's on the throne, supreme over every name. He's the head of the body. He's the cornerstone of the church. And and Paul is going on and on talking about all that God has done through Jesus and how supreme Jesus Christ is. Paul gets it, and he responds to this amazing reality as he should and as we should. Look at the end of chapter 3 and verse 20. After unpacking all of this doctrine, all this theology, telling us what is true, telling us, t- telling us what is real, Paul concludes this doctrinal section with doxology, with worship. He says in verse 20, Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul gets it. Paul recognizes how massively significant these precious truths are of God's glory, God's grace to us through his son Jesus, and what we have received in being forgiven of our sins reconciled to God, made alive, made new, and joined together as a new family, as a new body, as a spiritual temple. Listen, friends, it's only when you grasp the weight of these truths that you will have the spiritual motivation and the spiritual power that sustains obedience. You see, if we just start in chapter four, and if Paul just starts telling us, here's what you need to do, here's what you need to do, here's what you need to do, you may not feel that compelled And you may think it's too hard, and you may think that it's not worth it, but when you understand the doctrinal foundation for all of this, it infuses us with motivation and power that sustain obedience. If you recognize who Jesus is and understand what God has done for us through him, listen, 
If you get that, it'll change your life. It will radically revolutionize your life. You will find yourself as recipients of this truth and this grace, ready and willing to obey him, saying, yes, Lord, I am your servant, and I delight to do your will. And that's actually the impact that these truths are intended to have. When Paul gets to chapter 4, he turns the corner. Since Christ is supreme, since we've been saved to the praise of his glorious grace, since we are united as fellow members of his body, since he is our head, then there are some implications for us and for how we must live. Look in chapter 4, verse 1. Right after this doxology, right after wrapping up his, his big doctrinal section where he's taught us all this incredible theology, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He says, there is a manner of life that is in keeping with these truths. There's a manner of life that is fitting and the right response, the right reaction to these realities. And the implication is there's also a kind of living that's not. A kind of living that is incompatible with these truths. That betrays a, a lack of belief and a failure to embrace all that God has done for us through Christ. Look in chapter 5, verse 1. This practical instruction continues. Walking refers to how you live. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Paul has told us all that God has done, all that he has done through Jesus. Now he's telling us what we must do. We need to walk in a certain way. We need to imitate God as beloved children. He says in verse 8 that you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. It says we're to, in verse 10, we are to seek to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. He says in verse 15 of chapter 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. You see, in light of all this Christian doctrine, Paul now compels us, instructs us about our Christian duty, how we are to live in the world and in the church and in the home. This brings us to our section in 522. You see, Paul calls us as husbands and wives to live in a certain way, to relate to each other in a certain way. But all of these commands are built on a solid foundation of the grace of God, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and the glory of the gospel. So we have to start there before we jump into some of these imperatives. We have to look at those indicatives. But that prepares us now to jump in and look at some of these practical instructions that flow from these glorious truths. You know, one of the implications of Christ's supremacy, one of the implications of the fact that you and I are, are recipients of his grace if we are believers, if we're trusting in Christ, it's that our interactions with each other are to be marked by mutual humility, love, service, and deference. Look actually back in verse 21, right before our text this morning. After encouraging us to walk in wisdom, to not be foolish, to be filled by the Spirit, he urges us, verse 21, that we're to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. As those empowered by the Holy Spirit, as those who love Jesus and belong to him, we are to submit to one another. And you say, why? Why are we to treat one another this way in the church? Why not fight for our rights? Why not prefer our opinions and, and struggle to get our way? Well, look what Paul says in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for who? It's reverence for Christ. You can read it. It's right there. That's the motivation. If you look at this in the Greek text, it's literally in the fear of Christ. Phobos, which is translated here in the ESV, reverence. Because we take God seriously, because we fear Christ, we understand who he is and all that we has done that motivates us and compels us to respond to one another with humility and deference, a willingness to submit to one another. And then in verse 22, Paul takes up this idea of submission, and he begins to talk about exactly how submission plays out in the home. In verse 22, he tells us that wives are to submit to husbands, willingly yielding to their leadership. Husbands, as we'll get to next week, are to lay aside their rights to sacrificially love their wives. Verse 25 and then Michael's going to preach from chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 in a couple weeks, that children are to submit to their parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So Paul takes this idea of submission in the church, and now he's going to focus in on the family and say this is how it should look in the home. 
This is how God desires you to relate to one another as husbands and wives and children. So this week we're going to look at God's instruction to wives and consider with me the necessity of submission in marriage. Our text is verses 22 through 24. I'm going to read it and then we'll walk through this together. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So verse 22, we find number one this morning that submission, biblical submission of a, of a wife to a husband is a direct command. It's a direct command, wives, Paul's addressing you this morning. Submit to your own husbands. There must be a functional authority at every level of society in order for life to just work. I mean, we know this is true at the national level with politics. At the end of the day, somebody has to make a decision. Somebody's in charge. Otherwise, we have anarchy. We have chaos. We know it's true in, a bus- in the business world. Somebody is the boss. Somebody's the CEO. Somebody's in management. And somebody's not. And it actually works best when everybody knows their roles. It's also true in the church. God establishes elders, pastors to lead the church. There's functional authority there. And here we find that there is also, intended by God, a functional authority in the home. Who has the authority to make decisions, to lead. You know, even in a voting democracy, even in a place like the United States, we have a mechanism for deciding whose ideas will be acted upon, don't we? That mechanism is a vote. Well, God gives us the mechanism here that wives are to submit to their husbands. God's will is that the husband has the final say in the home when it comes to making decisions, that he's to be the primary influencer, and this is a direct command. It's in black and white on your lap, and if you're upset about it, I'm not saying this this morning. This is God's word to us today. We are not to reverse this order. God has not left it an open competition in marriage to see whose ideas are the best or whose personality is the strongest. Husbands are called to lead with great humility and love, as we will see next week. And wives are to joyfully respond to that leadership with humble submission. So simple enough, right? That, that should be easy. We can be done. No, this is actually hard. This is a hard truth, even though it's a clear truth. It's simple, but that doesn't make it easy. It's disputed by many. And even those who agree with what it says here in Ephesians 5, we don't always like it, do we? We don't always find it easy to obey this command. Why is this so hard? We talked about this a few weeks ago, but remember what happened back in Genesis chapter 3. One of the consequences of the fall, when Adam and Eve took the fruit against God's command and ate of the fruit, was they brought a curse upon themselves and upon the whole creation. And part of that curse was God said to Eve that her desire would be for her husband. Not in a romantic sense, not like, oh, I love you, I want to be with you, I need you, not that kind of desire. She would have the desire to master him, the desire to rule over him. It's the same word that we find in Genesis chapter 4 when God warns Cain and says, be careful, sin is crouching at the door and it desires to rule over you. It wants to master you. It's the same kind of language that a wife, because of our fallen condition, because you all have sin in your hearts, there is this tendency, this pull to usurp that role and to be domineering, to be in charge, to be in control, to manipulate, to get your way. This is so hard for us because we have sinful hearts. That's what makes it hard to submit That's what makes it hard for husbands to love and serve, by the way, as well. And it produces conflict in the home. You know, in James chapter 4, we have some wise pastoral insight. James, the brother of Jesus, says this in James 4.1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's a valid question, isn't it? How many of you have asked that question in your home? Why are we fighting right now? How did this argument start? If you go read... A lot of practical marriage handbooks, they'll say, well, you need better communication. Or, you know, you just need to understand each other's love language. All that can be helpful. But listen to what James says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James says, listen, the reason we have conflict at any level in the world, whether in the home or in the family or at the workplace and the neighborhood, is because of these desires, these lusts, these inordinate desires that rule us. I must have this. I will get it. That causes conflict. You know, we often think the reason we have conflict in my house is because I'm right and my spouse is wrong, you know, and because they just won't agree with me. No, the reason we have conflict in the home is because we're idolaters, because we worship ourselves and our own desires are on the throne and not Christ. We don't have communication problems. We have worship problems. We don't have compatibility issues. We have sinful selfishness issues. The refusal to submit is sin. It is sin. It violates this clear biblical command. And God didn't stutter when he gave us this instruction. So we need to obey this without hesitation. But in order for us to rightly receive this instruction, because this verse is honestly one that's been misunderstood and misrepresented by many people in many times and many places. So we need to understand what this doesn't mean. And I hope this will be helpful to you. I hope it will provide some clarity so that you hear me loud and clear what I'm not saying, what I'm not advocating for, what is not God's design. We need to clarify what submission isn't. Number one, this is a call to action, not a call to inaction. When you hear the call to submit, that might sound to you like do nothing. Be a jellyfish that just kind of floats along. But to submit means more than just not opposing your husband's leadership. To submit to your husband, sisters, means more than just not being combative when he tries to lead. It means responding to his leadership in a positive sense. This is not something that someone does to you. You don't submit someone else. No, submission is an action that you are to perform It means following actively. It means helping. It means participating. It means cooperating. This is part of what a wife is created to be. In Genesis 2.18, as we saw a few weeks ago, the Lord God said as he looks at his creation, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Is a helper someone who does nothing? Is a helper someone who is passive? Is a helper a jellyfish who's just along for the ride, who has no thoughts, no contributions? No ideas, no insights. No, a helper helps. A helper does something. Despite what some may think, submission is not mindless passivity. I mean, when when God calls us here, when God calls you here as wives to submit your will and to submit your desires, to submit your opinions, it's assuming that you have them, that there's something going on in there and that you actually have a lot to contribute Biblical submission does not mean that wives make no contribution. Rather, what it means is that your insights, your opinions, your concerns, they're actually all shared as a means of helping. As we see in Proverbs 31, this this woman, who's the portrait of wisdom and, and grace and maturity, it says, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and get this, the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She has a lot to offer. No wonder verse 11 says the heart of her husband trusts in her. He trusts her not just because he knows she's loyal. He trusts in her because he trusts her judgment. He trusts trusts her love for the Lord. He trusts her insights. And he trusts her giftings. And he benefits from that. What a gracious gift it is for a man to have a wise and godly wife whose counsel brings added insight as he seeks to lead his family. Submission doesn't mean that you are passive, that you do nothing, that you contribute nothing. Uh, Submission does not mean a wife has no influence in the home. What it means is that her influence is to be by means of persuasion and example and prayer, never coercion. This is true even in a home where the husband is not a believer. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3, 1, likewise wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, They may be one without a word. How? By the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. It's by your conduct. It's by your character, wives, that you wield great influence in your home. A godly woman can have a massive impact in the heart of her husband and in her children. 
Another clarification, this call to biblical submission is not prescribing slavish obedience and is not giving men a free pass to treat their wives as their personal attendants. Go make me a sandwich. That's not what this is talking about. Husbands, if you think that you can take this verse and use it to boss your wife around, you need to come back next week and hear the rest of chapter 5. Because there's a lot more that's said to husbands, and you have a responsibility for your wife and to your wife. And it doesn't look like you bossing her around to get you what you want and do your bidding. We'll do more on that next week. But that kind of dehumanizing treatment is actually incompatible with the biblical teaching on a woman's dignity as a daughter of of the king, as one made in God's image. It's incompatible with her radical equality one who is every bit as valuable and as worthwhile as you as a man. It's incompatible with the instruction to husbands to sacrificially love their wives and not to rule over them like some patriarchal dictator. That is not God's will. That's not what he means when he calls wives to submission, which among other things means, this last clarification here, the biblical submission never means following your husband into sin. A husband has no authority to lead his wife, to violate the will of God. That can never happen. Ultimately, a wife's allegiance is to who? It's to Christ. It's not to her husband. It's not to her husband. Christ is supreme, as we saw in the first three chapters of Ephesians, not the man in the home. It's a contradiction to disobey the Lord by following your husband out of obedience to the Lord. That that makes no sense. That doesn't work. You are never to sin and say that you're trying to follow the lead of your husband. That's not biblical submission. We can kind of make the analogy. We're also called in the New Testament, uh, in Romans, for example, chapter 13, to obey the civil authorities, aren't we? To obey the rulers and the governmental authorities over us. But Scripture upholds the necessity of civil disobedience when the government tries to enforce that we commit sin. We see biblical examples of this. Remember the story of those three Hebrew men who were uh, in Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar builds this massive statue, this idol, and he says, "When the music bows, everyone, or when the music plays, everyone bow down and worship the idol." So the music played, and there was three men standing in defiance against the word of this emperor, the ruler of the known world at the time. He drugged them before him and said, "I'm going to give you a second chance." bow your knee when you hear the music play and they said you don't have to give us a second chance our minds already made up and even if it costs us our lives we will not bow respectful but defiant they would not bow the knee to an idol they would not sin against their god we see in the new testament as well the peter and the other apostles have been commissioned by christ to preach the gospel to all the nations so you know what they're doing they're preaching the gospel to all the nations, and they're starting right in their own backyard in Jerusalem. The religious, the religious leaders of the day drag them into court. They beat them and say, do not preach in his name. And what do they say to him, to, to, these, to these leaders? We must obey God rather than man. We must obey God rather than man. A godly wife can, listen, and must refuse her husband's wishes when he attempts to lead her to sin. So I want to clarify what we don't mean by wives submit to your husbands. That's what it's not. So let's reject the caricatures. Let's avoid the distortions. And wives, I'm calling you this morning in light of all that God has done for us through Christ because Jesus is supreme to submit to your husbands. But there's more to our text than just this command. He says, verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord as to the Lord. So submission is a direct command, but number two, it's to be done in a distinct manner. It's to be done in a distinct manner, as to the Lord. Submit to your own husbands, not every man, but to your own husbands, it's very personal and specific, as to the Lord. Wives, it matters how you respond to your husband. It matters how you submit to him. Now, again, we need to clarify, this does not mean you treat your husband as the Lord. He is not Jesus, and you could have probably told me that, right? Your husband is not Jesus. Don't treat him like Jesus. He's a sinful man, a fellow recipient of grace. What this means is that fulfilling your duty to submit to your husband 
is your expression of loyalty not to him but to Christ. You do it for Jesus' sake, not just for the sake of your husband. This point is often missed. We often focus on other parts of this, and we miss this, this central, central idea that submitting to your husband, it's not ultimately done for your husband. It's done for Christ. Your submission to him is an act of faith in Jesus. You're trusting the word of Christ. You're trusting God's design that it is good. It's an expression of your faith. And it's also an act of love, expressing your desire to please Christ above all else, to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling, to seek to be pleasing to him in every way. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The wife, the godly wife who submits to her husband does it for Jesus' sake. She does it as to the Lord. It is her expression of obedience and love and worship to Christ. Romans 12.1 says this, to all Christians in a generic sense, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Friends, God doesn't want you to tip him with your leftover money, your leftover time. He doesn't want you just to sprinkle a little bit of Jesus in here and there. No, the right response to who God is and what Christ has done is to offer our entire selves to him. Complete surrender to the will and the word of God. Enjoy as an act of worship, as an expression of gratitude. Jesus, you've given your life for me. Here I am. I am yours. In that sense, a wife's submission to her husband is just her applying Romans 12.1. Jesus, here is my offering of worship to you. This means that biblical submission must be more than just external cooperation, doesn't it? It's an act of the mind, an act of the heart, an act of the will. Because you know what? You can go along with something on the outside and hate it and resent it and resist it in a million other ways. But friends, that is not biblical submission. Think about it for a moment. If God hates heartless worship, if God hates uncheerful giving, if that's a word, because he commands us to be cheerful in our giving, if God hates empty ritualistic prayer, vain repetitions, if God hates selfishly motivated service, then we can safely assume he's not pleased by surface level submission either. When we submit to husbands, not we, you women, when you submit to your husbands, because I'm not a wife, when you submit to him as to the Lord, is it something, it's something that must involve the heart. Let me ask you, does this mindset describe your attitude towards submission in marriage? Do you see it as heartfelt worship to your Savior? Because this is a means by which you worship Christ and obey him. You know, the implication here, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, is that failing to submit to your husband is ultimately not just a sin against him, but a sin against Christ. But you know what? When you understand that your submission to your husband is to be done as to the Lord, in some ways this may actually make it a little easier for you. This may be helpful to understand this. In some ways it gets easier because you know what? Like we said earlier, no husband is Jesus, not even close. But here's the deal. Your husband may not deserve your trust. Your husband may not deserve your respect. Your husband may not deserve your submission. In fact, I'd wager he likely doesn't if he's a sinner like me. But you know who does deserve your trust, your respect, and your submission? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus does. You know, the saying is common, you know, if mom ain't happy, nobody happy. You guys have heard that before? Let that never be said of us as Christians. The one who must be pleased in the home is not the wife. She's not the one we're trying to make happy. It's also not the husband. We're also not trying to make the man happy. You know who deserves to be pleased and honored in the home? It's Christ. This is how we honor and worship him. Now, you might, you might ask, okay, so why? Here's the instruction. You know, here's the direct command. Submit to your own husbands. Here's the distinct manner in which it's to be done as to the Lord. But why? Well, you know what? God doesn't owe us an explanation for his commands. But he does give us some explanation here. We go on to our third point this morning. So submission is a direct command. It's to be done in a distinct manner. But third, submission is grounded in an unchanging reality. That unchanging reality is Christ's 
headship over the church and the husband's headship over the wife. Look in verse 20, uh, 23. Well, 22 again. We'll just read it. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for. See that little reason? You can, that little word, you can circle that. It's telling us here's why. Here's why. Here's the grounds for this command. Here's the basis upon which this command is built for. Here's the reason why we should do this. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. There's a fundamental reality here that the husband is the head of the wife. Headship implies authority. It implies leadership. We even use this in in the English language. We refer to the head of a corporation, right? Or we refer to the head of state. Or we may even say the head of the household, right? But at the heart of this idea of, of headship is authority. And it applies in the home. And what's so important about this verse is that this idea of headship is not a cultural thing. It's not just a tradition. It's not a passing custom that changes over time. This is not something that evolves or changes. It is central to what a husband is. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven three. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, Paul groups all three of those things together, that Christ is the head of the man, that the man is the head of the wife, and, and the head of Christ is God. How many of those things change? Does God the Father ever stop being the functional authority in that sense in the Trinity? Co-equal in glory, but the Son does the Father's will. Does that ever change? Does that change with time? Does that get updated as culture and movements and other things happen? No. Neither does the headship of the husband over the wife. People change. Cultures change. But this is an unchanging reality. And here's what this means for us. You do not submit to your husband because of his character. You don't submit to your husband because of his competency, because of his track record, not even because he may have earned it, not necessarily because he's wiser or stronger or smarter or better at leading than you. You may be smarter and wiser and better at leading than him. Why submit then? It's because of what he is. He is the head. This truth of headship is, again, true not only in the home but also in the church, We see Paul points that out. We see that. The husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Thus, this is a sacred pattern, friends. The pattern of headship in the home, of leadership and submission, is a sacred pattern that must not be tampered with because it points us to the gospel, that message that is of first importance. We see Christ's headship in Ephesians 1.22. Paul talked about this earlier in his letter. He says, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Colossians 1.17 says about Jesus that he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is the head, which implies his authority over the church. He directs the body. We do not direct him. He is in control. He is in the position of power and authority. He must be preeminent, not us. That's why we pray, not our will, but yours be done. But here's the amazing thing, and I think this should inform how we understand marriage as well. Belonging to the body, this is for all of us as Christians, those of us who know Christ. Belonging to the body, having Christ as our head, Is this something that somehow lessens our dignity? Does belonging to Christ's body somehow demean our value or our worth? No, belonging to the body is a great privilege. It is a good and glorious and gracious truth. We belong to Christ. We are his body, which implies care and affection. We are the recipients of his care and his provision and his love. Jesus even serves us. I mean, how mind-blowing is that? That the glorious second person of the Godhead, he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and lay down my life as a ransom for many. He washes our feet. He dies in our place. 
This will be unpacked later in verses 25 through 32. But notice what Paul says. Um, If you're back up in verse 23, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Savior. Christ is a savior, not an abuser, not a manipulator, not an oppressor. He doesn't exploit us. He loves us. He saves us and serves us. And we receive love and we respond in submission to him as our head. Similarly, in a marriage, a husband's headship is not to be used selfishly. The husband is not to be an oppressor. A husband, as we'll see next week, is to be like the one who saved us. Husbands are to serve and sacrifice for the good and joy of their wives. This headship brings great responsibility. Husbands will be held to a greater accountability before God. You and I, men, if you're the the, uh, husband in your home, we will be held to a greater accountability. We're going to answer for how we lead and love our families. And we'll answer to God in ways that our wives won't. It's a serious responsibility. So the basis for a wife's submission is because of what her husband is as her head. Colossians, therefore, records Paul's instructions that a wife's submission is fitting in the Lord. It's appropriate. It's the way it ought to be. Anything else is out of place. Anything else is out of step. You know, some people want to update the marriage roles. Some people want to maybe kind of, you know, cut this page out of the Bible, so to speak, But to do so is to live in denial of creation and to show a distaste for the gospel itself. A distaste for Christ and his relationship to the body. If we're honest about how we are made and if we deeply love the good news of our union with Christ through faith, then we will find submission in marriage to be a good and glorious thing that transcends cultural norms and applies at all times and in all places. So it's a direct command. It's to be done in a distinct manner. We see that it's grounded in this unchanging reality. And then finally, we see that submission is to be comprehensive in its scope. That's how Paul kind of wraps up his word to wives. He says, now, as the church submits to Christ, there's that analogy again, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, this is where it may be, again, a little bit uncomfortable for some of you. Some of you might be thinking, sure, I I submit all the time. I have no problem letting my husband lead in the areas where I want him to lead me. Does that work? No. Paul says, in everything, in everything. It's to be comprehensive all the time, every area, with every issue. There aren't exceptions to this. If the church is to obey Christ all the time, if in the church the tail never wags the dog, right, then it's to be that way in the home as well. There's never a time in marriage when this command is not applicable. Again, within the bounds of a husband leading towards Christ and not into sin. You know, there may be a division of labor in the home. Maybe a division of expertise and knowledge, but there's never a division of authority. Because authority in the home is not derived from experience. It's not derived from knowledge. It's not derived from skill. Authority and influence is not won through competition or argumentation or manipulation. No matter how much you think you have a right to get your way in a certain area, God calls you to submit in everything. Now, this is hard because sometimes... Maybe even oftentimes, a wife may know better than her husband. She may even be right, and he may be wrong. She may have better judgment. But in such situations, a wife is to share her knowledge. She's to express her desires. She's to appeal to wisdom. But then at the end of the day, she is to willingly submit her will to the decision of her husband. Without strings attached, with no ultimatums, without bribery, without threats, No emotional blackmail. She is to join him and follow his leadership in faith that God will bless her obedience. And this is really where it takes a lot of faith for you wives to obey this command. You have to trust that if I trust God enough to obey him and follow this imperfect, finite man, that God is going to bless that. That he's not going to leave me out to dry. And that there is a great reward for that coming. Life is short, eternity is long. And God sees and he knows the difficult choices that are made, the difficult relationships that some of you may have to work through. And God will honor faith and obedience. 
So just as we wrap up, a couple ideas here for application. You might think, okay, so what gets in the way? What gets in the way of us doing this? Well, I think the first thing that may get in the way is ignorance. We just don't realize that this is how it's supposed to be because we think like the world. We're frogs in the water, and we don't realize the, the temperature change. Well, it's too late for that now because now you know. So we have to get that excuse out of the way. We've all read Ephesians 5, through 24 this morning. Now you are accountable. It doesn't mean everything's going to change instantly, but it should mean that there's hopefully a process of growth that's happening for some of you. As you recognize areas in your life that need to change, that growth starts today. Confess your sin. Ask for God's grace to forgive you. Ask for God's grace to strengthen you to obey in ways that are honestly difficult at times. He will sustain your faith and your obedience as you seek to follow him. Another thing that gets in the way is pride. Pride. We don't want to submit because we don't like it. We want to do our own thing. We are people who are always in need of a greater humility. You know, James says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you refuse to submit to your husband out of pride, you're actually setting yourself up not against your husband, but against God. That's a sobering thing. God's undefeated. You're not going to win that. If you're his child, he actually loves you too much to let you be selfish and to let you present to the world a distorted picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. So here's maybe a question you can ask your own heart. Is pride getting in the way for me? Is my desire for my husband to make much of me or is my desire to help my husband make much of Christ? Who's on the throne in your heart? If it's self, then there needs to be repentance. Confess your sin of worshiping self instead of God and allow Jesus to be back on the throne. Seek to grow in humility because pride will get in the way of a marriage relationship working as it ought to. And it messes up the husband's role a ton too. We'll talk about that next week. But again, there's another obstacle. I think fear can be an obstacle. And we talked about this already, but can you really trust God enough to submit to your husband? Because there are real risks. There may be a cost involved. But obedience to Christ out of faith in his word is always worth it. Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. He says, whoever loses his life, we could say for this morning, whoever loses her life will find it and save it. It's worth it. It's always worth it. Some of you may say, you know what? I agree with what you're saying. I see that it's in the Bible, and I want to do this, but I'm weak. Weakness may be something that gets in the way of obedience to this command. You want to obey Christ. You want to submit to your husband, and you try. It's just hard. It's real hard. Let me encourage you to seek the strength that God provides. Right before our passage um, here in Ephesians 5, Paul has just urged us not to be drunk with wine, not to be under the influence of some substance, but to be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. If you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, then you have supernatural power. Not the kind of power probably that's going to help you go out and walk on water and raise all the dead and go to the hospital and heal everybody, but the kind of power that can actually help you overcome the desires of your flesh. That's power, and it's real, and you need it, and God has provided it. He's provided it for you. You don't have to do this by yourself. You don't have to make excuses and say, well, that's just who I am. You don't have to give up and say, I tried, but it's too hard, and I'm giving up. The gospel is big enough not just to set you free from hell, but also to free you from the power of sin and make you more and more like Jesus every day. Embrace it. Lean in on the power that God supplies through his spirit. Some of you may say this morning, you know what, I want to do this. But i got to be honest, J.D., this is hard because I have no one to submit to. My husband won't lead. I want him to. He just won't. I've tried to get him to, but maybe he just can't. You don't know my husband. Maybe you feel like a motorboat that's in the middle of the lake, except the motor's not running. And you're, you want to go places. You're in the boat, but you're just adrift. What do you do? What do you do? Well, this would be another sermon, but just a couple things. I would encourage you first to pray, and then pray some more. Pray for your husband. Ask God to change him, to grow him. Secondly, I would encourage you to invite him to lead. And that word invite is important. Not to nag him into leading, not to scold him, not to always be constantly rebuking him, but invite him to lead. Let him know, I desire to follow your leadership. And I am open and receptive to that. Invite him to lead. 
Don't hound him. Just affirm your desire and affirm your willingness to follow him. And then when he makes his, you know, kind of sorry attempts sometimes to do it, but you know he's trying, encourage him a little bit. Affirm him and say, I appreciate that you're trying to lead our family, that you want to honor Christ. I value that. Encourage him. I would also ask you to think about this. Perhaps you may need to confess some past sins to him and say, I'm sorry for how I've opposed your leadership and refused to cooperate with your leadership and been apathetic towards your leadership in the past. Perhaps some of those things have made him hesitant. That's not an excuse for him. He's accountable before God. But you may be able to prime the pump in that way by confessing your sins against him, which are ultimately against God. But I want to encourage you at the end of the day, remember that your ultimate allegiance is not to your husband, it's to Christ. And so if your husband will not lead, or if you do not have a husband, you have a Savior who loves you, who leads you, who will guide you by his Spirit through his word, and he's given you the body. You may be the only one in your physical location of your home, but you have a church family. You have brothers and sisters in Christ. God's given spiritual leadership to you in the church. You don't have to do life alone. And so some of these truths can be applied in other ways. Um, And you are not missing out in the sense that God can't provide what you need unless you have a husband. Um, Christ is supreme. Christ is sufficient. We've been given everything we need for life and godliness. So wives, let me exhort you, according to Ephesians 5, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In this way, you have the great privilege of reflecting the beauty and glory of the gospel as you model the church's relationship to her head, Jesus Christ. If Christ is supreme in our hearts, friends, then husbands, we're going to lead with love and humility, and wives, you are going to submit with joyful obedience, and it will all result in the glory of our supreme Savior. Jesus Christ. Lord, we look in your word and we are often challenged. We're challenged because the things we find there are often so radically counter to the culture and often so radically counter to the desires of our own flesh. God, I pray that you'd renew our minds, bring our thinking into line with your truth, and I pray also that you would purify our hearts, overcome those remaining fleshly desires, overcome our fear and unbelief, strengthen our faith, And stir up within us a love that compels us to obey. Jesus, you are supreme. You deserve all the glory. I pray that our lives would reflect our faith in you. And that the world would see and know uh, the change that happens when one comes to Christ. We pray all this in